don't know how much you're paying attention to what's going on over in Kentucky right now. Um, if you're on Facebook or connected to any kind of Christian media outlet, I'm sure you've seen. But Asbury Seminary, a week passed on Wednesday, gathered for chapel as normal. Uh, students are required Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to be in chapel. They're forced to be there. No one half the time wants to be there. They turned up for their hour chapel. They had the gospel choir because it's Black History Month. They've been focusing on having their gospel choir singing. Did the gospel choir sing? They said, just do all the music at the front. It's just a couple of songs. Uh, someone got up and spoke a very simple message and then at the end said, any chance you can lead us in another song? And so they started singing another song and another song and another song. And then uh, the gospel choir went away to get their lunch. I'm going to cry. Um, went away to get their lunch and a group of students, just a handful of students, sat at the front praying. They prayed for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. The gospel choir finished their lunch. They came back in, saw people still praying and started singing again. It was Wednesday the 11th and they're still going. 24-7 hours a day, seven days a week. College students on a campus in Kentucky pray night and day because God has grabbed hold of their heart. Yeah, we should be applauding that, right? People from all around the world now are flying in to get a a glimpse of what's going on there. And I think my favorite thing in the whole story is it's students that are praying. It's students that are leading worship. It's just a guitar or a piano. One person leading. They don't have a big band. There are famous people saying, I'd love to come and lead worship. And they're saying, no, the students have got it. There's famous speakers saying, I'd, I'd love to come and give a message. And they're saying, no, our faculty have got it and the students have got it. And now they're restricting uh, who can come. And they've made it that there's like, basically, if you're a high schooler or a college student, you skip to the front of the line and everyone else has to line outside for hours in the hopes that they can get in because God is moving. And high schoolers and college students, and now it's sparked. Last time I looked, there were 13 different campuses that now have night and day prayer and worship happening on their campus because of what God did in that moment. And so you can't, <laughs> you can't come into a service like this after reading these stories all week and listening to the interviews and hearing what God is doing. I'm like, let's just do church as normal. So if you haven't seen, jump online and, and read. Uh, jump on YouTube and, and look for some testimonies and hear the stories of what God is doing. That's really beautiful. I had a moment, um, just a little encouragement for you on top of that. I had a moment last weekend where it was Friday or Saturday. It started on Wednesday and I was like, I'm not one of those spontaneous people that just buys a plane ticket and goes. And I was sitting in my office on Friday and I started looking at plane tickets and I was like, maybe I should go. Like I've never been around when one of these spontaneous awakening, outpouring moments happens. I want to go see it. And I thought, I was like, oh, 500 bucks for a round trip. That's not too bad. And um, and then as I was sitting there, I was like, man, I don't need to go to Kentucky to see God's, stir, God's spirit waking a group of people. What have we been doing for the last two and a half years here? Right? What happened last January when we did the prayer room for the first time and God reopened a hunger for us. Hey, I'm constantly telling other pastors when I'm in the city, I'm like, I don't understand, but God is moving in people. People keep turning up and wanting to be here. People that have been here for a long time are reawakening to excitement around the gospel. So I don't need to go there to see where the spirit is moving because he's already doing it here. So thank you for being on this journey. Yeah, feel free. Um, 
thank you for being on this journey. It's humble. We're figuring out things as we go, but that's what God loves, and God is blessing it. So, part of me wants to just keep rambling. Part of me is like, there's a sermon here. (sighs) Maybe we needed that because of the conviction that's coming. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So let me me start with a story. Um, I don't even know when this would have been now. You're talking 2008, so that's quite a chunk ago. Talk, is that 15 years ago, 14 years ago, something like that? Um, I have, uh, I developed a habit of giving stuff up for Lent. And so how this worked in my life, the first time I decided to give something up, I'm like, I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent. Um, And then, well, I think I did chocolate and coffee. But anyway, I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent. So I went through Lent with no chocolate, but it was amazing how good Haribo gummies taste when you have no chocolate. So the next year when Lent rolled around, I was like, okay, I'm going to give up chocolate and I'm going to give up all the gummy sweeties. And it was amazing how much like pretzels and potato chips and stuff got really exciting. And I was like, okay, the next year I was like, I'm giving up all the sugary stuff and I'm going to give up those snacky foods. And then it was like coffee galore. And that's like, now I'm going to, so each year I would add in till I was having nothing enjoyable, right? <laughs> Carrots. Uh, that was, that was all I was getting. So, so I was going through Lent, giving up a lot of things. And, uh, and, and so this, this, when Mon and I got together, this has been one of the banes of our is she here? Is she gone? Oh, oh she's through with the kids. Uh, one of the banes of her, of, of her experience of being married to me, because every Lent I give up everything. And she's like, it's really good spiritually for you, but it's not so fun for the rest of us because you give up the coffee and the sugary things, you get a little bit grumpier. Um, but she, she also hates it because my birthday always falls in the middle of Lent. March 22nd, if anyone wants to know. Uh, <laughs> it's coming up. Uh, so I, she, she's always like, I hate that you, like, we can't do a cake. You never want to do anything fun for your birthday. So this was a time uh, I was leading a young adult ministry down in Wilsonville, and uh, a whole bunch of us would go do all sorts of fun things. So before my birthday, we decided we'd all head to Coldstone. There's a nice picture here if you want a, a tasty picture. So middle of Lent, I've had no sugar. Uh, this was one of the years where... Uh, where Easter was a little bit earlier, so my birthday was right toward the end of Lent. So I've had no sugar or anything enjoyable for like a long time, 40 days it is. Uh, And we decide, okay, for this one day, I'll go, we'll break Lent early by going to Coldstone. So I walk into Coldstone, and what do I do? I see on the wall uh, their, what's it called? Their chocolate, I wrote it down because I couldn't remember, their chocolate devotion. What a name. Chocolate ice cream with chocolate brownie with chocolate fudge syrup and a chocolate dipped waffle corn. And if you're familiar with Cold Stone, they have three sizes, right? You've got the like it, you've got the love it, and then you've got the gotta have it. So I'm like, I've had nothing, so I gotta have it. So I get the chocolatiest chocolatey giant corn thing about this size. And there's like 20 of us there all eating. And I wolf down this entire chocolate delight. And by the time we were leaving, I was a little bit lightheaded. I was a little bit jittery. And I won't go into detail, but I had to spend a significant amount of the next hour in the bathroom because a different type of chocolate was appearing. Um, Okay, that was too far, right? (laughs) But I'd I'd love to say, I'd love to say 14 years ago I learned my lesson. (laughs) 
I'd love to say that that's uh, a part of my past, but let me show you another picture. I don't know if you've heard of this place. Um, I get no royalties or anything if, if you go here. I saw this ad pop up. This is a place in Vancouver. Have you been? He's been. Um, this is a place in Vancouver. I saw online. So this is a milkshake place. So the milkshake is in the jar with the full dessert on the top. And I have to say, since I saw this, every opportunity I get, I'm like, can we go to the yard? Is this the time? Do we get to go? And I'd never gotten to go. So recently, Mon and I were up in the Vancouver area. We had a couple hours without the kids. And I was like, it's really close. We should go. And so, of course, we go. Now, remember, this is a full, large milkshake with a full dessert on the top of it. So we go, and Monica's like, we should probably share one. And I was like, no. No, we don't do that. Uh, you have your strange cinnamony donut thing and I'm going to have, it looked kind of like the second one along, there's a theme in my life, Uh, it was a salted caramel cheesecake milkshake so salted caramel blended up in this jar with the giant cheesecake on the top and as it would go, you start eating the dessert you start drinking the milkshake oh I have to get to the end of this because Monica's like you'll never finish it (laughs) So I forced down almost the entirety of the thing and then we spend the rest of our day looking at each other like, (laughs) disgusted. Couldn't save it all, couldn't finish it all, couldn't share because that would just be wrong because I was enticed by what I saw. So we're in this series going through the vices, no guesses what we're looking at today, but here's the definition of a vice that we've been looking for. These vices, there are seven, technically eight, that in the history of the church, they've looked at these vices and said, these are the core ones from which all of the other sin in our life derives. So a vice is a habit or a character trait which inclines us toward a certain type of action, or as Daniel said the other day to me, um, these vices are containers that all the rest of our sin lives inside. So today, I want to I take a moment and look at gluttony. And here's how we're going to define this today. So gluttony is when we reduce life to self-gratifying pleasure in eating and drinking. Here's what I want to set up as you look at this definition. Gluttony is not about, it's technically not about what we eat. And it's technically not about how much we eat about how much we focus our life around the pleasure in what we eat and drink. So gluttony is really the question of what is my relationship to food and to drink? And with all of the vices that we're looking at, you know, there's a spectrum with two ends on it. On one end, it's like, what does it look like when we take this to the excess and we have too much? The other end of the vice, which is the one we don't usually spend a lot of time in, is what does it look like when we focus on deficiency in the area? So when we're going to talk about gluttony, we can talk about everything from me with my gotta have it chocolate devotion ice cream experience all the way to the other side where we say, as Becca likes to tell me, she makes fun of me because I'm not a picky eater. But, uh, but I don't eat vegetables, I don't eat cherries, I don't do cinnamon, I don't do... So it can be everything on the other end where our focus on the pleasure of eating means that we're picky and nothing's ever good enough and I can only eat this, this uh, menu item when it's from this particular restaurant. So to what degree is your life and your pleasure uh, wound up in what it is that you're eating and drinking? I don't need to go very far to look at the cultural uh, places that we see this. Here's a great picture for you. I don't know who did this. 
um, one that's close to our hearts. We encouraged you last week or the week before to indulge in some healthy gluttony. Um, American culture celebrates gluttony. We don't often realize that the whole of our society is built around getting too much. Marketing companies want us to have more than we need. Um, and so everything about our society and lots of its brokenness and, and lots of the disparity that we see in the country is tied up around this gluttony issue. And, and, and I want to just add in here, it's the relationship to food and drink. So just think for a moment of this culture's relationship to alcohol. Uh, there are clubs that you can go to where they're specializing in giving you as much alcohol as you can get as cheaply as possible so that you can overindulge and, uh, and we call it pleasure and then we regret it the next day. Let me give you a couple of interesting stats though. For the Super Bowl, uh, there were an estimated $14.6 billion spent on food. $14.6 billion in the U.S. spent on food. So, if there are 193 million adults watching the game, which is what's estimated, that means for the Super Bowl, people spent on average $85 per person on Super Bowl food. It's like $85 a person? It's like you went to McDonald's for a family of five. Um, Listen to this though, each year, 119 billion pounds of food gets wasted in the US. So that, they say, equates to 130 billion meals or $408 billion of food tossed. Approximately 40% of all of the food in the US and all of the food that you buy goes in the garbage. I think we've got an issue, right? If we're spending $85 per head on food that we don't need, on top of the money that we're already spending for the Super Bowl and all the things that go along with that in the commercials, if we're spending $85 a head on food that we don't need, and then we're throwing 40% of that food in the garbage, that means about $40 per person was thrown away for the Super Bowl and didn't go to someone in our culture or in our society who had need. Now, just notice the disparity for a moment. It's not the starving homeless people that are spending $85 per person on food. It's the people who have abundance who are spending that amount of money on food and then wasting it while someone on the corner of a street uh, goes hungry or someone in our neighborhood who has very little is struggling uh, to be able to feed their family because we're wasting That's heavy for me. I don't know how it is about you. Gluttony is core to our culture. And I've said this with many of the other vices that we're looking at. This is one of the difficulties I have when I'm, how do we as the church become the people God calls us to be? What is the message that we're giving to the world around about us? What is the message when you look at someone and you criticize them for having sex with someone this week outside of wedlock and we say that is something that God hates and then we go to a party and we stuff ourselves full of food and then we throw most of it away without care for anyone else in the world. God is equally unhappy with both of those but in the church we love our potlucks, right? I love my potluck (laughs) and this is starting to show that as I'll suck in a little bit. Um, 
we, yeah, we, in the church, there are certain ones of these vices that we celebrate. We delight in avarice and we delight in gluttony. And then we look out in the world and we criticize people uh, for one of the ways that they fall short. So with all of these, the question is, how balanced are you? Uh, Are you as uh, tough on yourself when you look at these sins as you are when you look at the people out there? So before we look at what the Bible says about gluttony, I want to take a moment. Um, I think it's important to remember the positive side of all of these things that we're looking at. So um, God gave us food to drink and to enjoy, right? This is core to the Bible. Uh, Food is not evil. Enjoying food is not evil. God gave it to us um, to eat and enjoy. So let's jump back to the beginning and just remind ourselves of some of the things the Bible says about food and its goodness. So this is uh, Genesis chapter 1. God said to Adam and Eve, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. So God creates in Genesis 1 all these things, calls them good, looks at Adam and Eve and says, all this stuff that's growing is yours to eat, so go enjoy it. What I love even more is Genesis 9. I'm sorry it came after the flood, but everything that lives and moves about will be food for you, just not the humans. Just as I gave you the green plants, now I give everything to you. Um, Reading through the Bible with some people right now, there's this verse in Deuteronomy that I fell in love with the other day, and it says, uh, when you go into a city and you say, I want to have meat, eat meat anytime you want, wherever you want it. And I was like... (laughs) Hallelujah. <laughs> so, um, so God made it, God gave it to us, and we're supposed to enjoy it. So Ecclesiastes is a really bizarre book, um, talking about the futility of life, uh, and that the only real value in life, there's, there's lots of things we do, but value is found in fearing God. But throughout this book, it, it, he's reframing, fearing God is, is about right relationship to him and to the work that we do and the things that we have. Here's a couple of things the writer of Ecclesiastes says uh, to the readers about food. He says, I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. And then later on, go eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart because God has already approved of of what you do. Um, And if you think through the Bible, like there's so many stories in the Bible of feasts, like all of Leviticus is setting up these feasts where Israel were supposed to come together, eat, drink, enjoy, remember, have fellowship. We look all at, at Jesus in scripture and all of the times that he would gather with people over a meal. Uh, and then you look ahead to the end. The end of the story is a heavenly banquet that we're invited to participate in where people of all nations and tribes and languages are coming together to celebrate at the table of the Lord. But somewhere along the line, this enjoyment of food and using it for, for, uh, for community and fellowship and the way God intended all goes wrong. Where does it go wrong? The same place everything goes wrong, right? Happens right at the beginning of the Bible. And I want you to take a moment as we read Genesis 3, I just want you to think about this through the lens of gluttony. We often think of this through the lens of pride, but what does this mean through the lens of gluttony? When the woman saw that the, the, the tree of the knowledge and good and evil that God said don't eat from, when the woman saw that the fruit of tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gain and wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Her desire 
was for the pleasure of eating what was growing on this tree. And the desire for the pleasure of tasting that fruit took priority over the relationship that she had with God and with her husband and with the created order. So right here, gluttony begins to take root. And so every time I go to Cold Stone and want the God to have it, it's because of this moment. I see that it looks good, it's pleasing for the eye, and I allow it to take priority over the things that God requires of me. Paul is cautioning uh, the Philippian church, and he's warning them against some false teachers and other people in the surrounding area that they need to guard against, and this is how he describes them. Philippians 3, many people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. I can certainly resonate in my own life with times when it feels like my God is my stomach. I have those moments where I'm sitting in the office and it's like, I gotta have a coffee. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, what I'm being called to do, what needs to happen. It's like, I've got to stop everything I'm doing and I've got to make my pilgrimage to the holy shrine of the coffee machine. Uh, and then I exert my energy and my worship in this glorious cup of coffee and then I get it and I drink it and I celebrate its goodness. Okay, you're like, am I the only one? <laughs> okay. I was like the silence. I was like, oh my goodness, this is just expose all my junk. So often our God is our stomach and we don't realize it. How much of your day is shaped around where can I get food? What am I going to have for dinner? What are we doing next? How much of it is like I got to drive from here to there, but I got to go via Starbucks and Erin Shelby, your story this morning made me think about this, right? The number of times I've gone through a Starbucks drive-thru and spent 20 minutes in a slow drive-thru sitting there really frustrated just so I can get a coffee that I didn't need, right? Because I just want the enjoyment of drinking it. Our God is our stomach. Is, if you look at your life and the drive for food and the way you shape your life around your meals and your coffee and your snacks, how does it compare to the way you shape your life around prayer and reading the word and worshiping and serving the poor, which one takes priority? Who is your God in those situations? Look at the book of Proverbs, a book full of wisdom. There's lots of little scatterings in here about the vices and how they are. I love some of the wording of the things in here. So Proverbs, better to have a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. Potent. Uh, I don't know if I agree, but uh, <laughs> but uh, okay. Um, Proverbs twenty three: Don't join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. An image of the end result of a life devoted to these things. Do not. Oh, that's the same one. There was supposed to be another one there. Never mind. I don't know what twenty eight seven is. So you can look that up yourself and have fun with that. Um, how easy it is uh, to get caught up in the vice of gluttony, to have it rooted in our life, to have it impacting the world around us and be completely oblivious to the way it happens. So I want to look at three uh, very practical dangers of gluttony. I'm going to try and go through these so we're not here all day. Um, So three very practical dangers uh, that we need to pay attention to. The first one 
we know this, right? Gluttony destroys our health. Our God through Moses to the people of Israel gave a whole bunch of commands about what it was going to look like for them to be a nation that was holy and set apart. One of the places you can go is Leviticus 11. I'm not going to stick it up here and read it all, but Leviticus 11 contains a whole bunch of regulations given to the nation of Israel around food. So you can eat uh, you can eat the cow, but you can't eat this animal over here if it's got a split hoof. And you can eat these kind of fish, but you can't eat the ones that are shellfish. And you can eat these kinds of birds, but you can't eat the ones that like eat carcasses off the road. Um, and and in that, there's a couple of things going on here that I think are always helpful to have in the back of our mind. When when God is giving the law to the nation of Israel, He's trying to make them a people who are set apart and distinct from all the other nations. So so part one of why food laws were given is that the way that they ate and the way that they interacted with food and the things that they said yes to and no to were supposed to mark them as different to every other nation. So you could see them sitting down and eating and by looking at their plate know that that must be a Jewish person. And you could see by them saying, no, sorry, I'm not going to eat those shellfish, that it was an opportunity for them to express their faith and, and reverse what Eve did in the garden by saying she was willing to take food that was forbidden. I'm willing to reject the food that God has said I can't have. So in one sense, it's just setting them apart as holy. The second part of what's going on in Leviticus and, and all, all through the Bible, but we see in Leviticus, is God is sanctifying all of their life. So he sets up feast days that sanctify their calendar so that throughout the year, their, their year is organized around celebrating him and rehearsing the stories. Uh, he has rules about what they're allowed to wear. That, that means every time they get up in the morning or every time they go shopping trying to find clothing, they're having to think about what does God want for me and the things that I'm wearing and in the things that they eat. Every time they have to sit down for a meal, they're reminded that they worship a God who cares about them, who's given them food and has given them instructions about what they can and can't eat. And so God is sanctifying all of their mealtimes by giving them restrictions in those areas. Now, I'm very happy that in the New Testament, Jesus is like, all things are clean, eat whatever you want. I'm like, hallelujah. Um, But I think in that, sometimes what happens is we lose some of the holiness of caring about the things we eat. I think the last thing that happens in Leviticus that, we don't, uh, that, that many commentators will comment on is when you go back to the time that it was written, there were health benefits and health dangers to the things that they eat. So often when you look at the list of what they could and couldn't have, the things that were restricted were things that they couldn't keep well. Shellfish, I mean, we see that today, how easy it is to get sick off of shellfish. Who wants to eat an animal that's just been feasting on a moldy carcass at the side of a what's that going to do? So there were health benefits. So as God was given these instructions, he was setting them apart, he was sanctifying the table, and then there were some health benefits attached to that. Gluttony destroys our health. Um, Food comes up a lot in the letter to the Corinthians. So the Corinthian church was hedonistic. They were all about pleasure and climbing the ladder. Um, Here's something that Paul says in chapter 6 to this pleasure-seeking church. He says, I've got the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And this is in the context, one chapter is about uh, food that's sacrificed to idols. The rest of it is about sexual health 
and sexual morality. Um, but in this, he's challenging them. What, your body is not yours. Like when you go to Starbucks and you buy that coffee and you put it in your body, remember the body that you're putting it in is not yours. When you eat that, that uh, chocolate devotion, like you're putting that in a body, that body is not yours. God has reserved it and has a plan for it. So what are you putting in there? Are you treating your body as the temple that houses the Holy Spirit? And are you doing what's needed to preserve it as long as possible? Let me look at... Um, a quote from Rebecca DeYoung's book, Glitter and Vices. This is, there's two pages of this. This is crazy. But just look at how messed up our food system is. She says, think about the ways we've already acquiesced to gluttony's ramped up demands for physical pleasure. Our society has invented things like chewing gum so that we can have the pleasant taste that comes from putting something in our mouth and chewing it and swallowing minty saliva without actually taking in any food or calories. Philosopher Slavoj Žižek once called Diet Coke the drink of nihilists because it has nothing in every single nutrient category on the label. Yet it remains the beverage of choice for millions of Americans who enjoy the taste but choose it precisely for its lack of nutritional content. We are hard-pressed to find foods in the supermarket without added sugars or sweeteners. Modern appetites also drive us to invent chemical substitutes for actual foods because they taste better and cost less to produce. Inventions like Olestra, a fat substitute in products like potato chips and microwave popcorn, help us enjoy these foods' great fatty taste without itself being a digestible substance. It keeps going on. Under the guise of manifold new products and lighter options of bewildering variety, we actually consume more artificial filler ingredients and food substitutes, such as soy or corn thickeners, than the advertised product. Add all of this up and our eating habits sound pretty perverse. We choose certain foods because they have no calories, chew things not meant to be swallowed, eat products that have been manufactured to look like food, and consume substances that cannot be digested, all so that we can have the unrestricted pleasure of eating while carefully bracketing the real nature and function of food itself. Without caloric consequences, our consumption is limited only by the amount of pleasure we crave, not by any bodily need, function, or capacity. Sometimes our food consumption looks like the moral equivalent of substance abuse, however legal. Dang, girl. (laughs) Tough words. Do we stop and think what we're putting in our body? Do we think about the way the vice of gluttony has fueled our culture? The second one, gluttony degrades our relationships. And this is to all of creation. Gluttony degrades relationships to people, to animals, and even to the land. Um, As you're eating, do you think of those who have nothing? When you run for some fast food, do you think about the people that are slaving away at a minimum wage job so that you can spend excess money to get something um, that is unhealthy for your body? When you think about sitting at the table and there's the last piece of chocolate cake sitting on the plate, do you think about everyone else before you grab it so that you're the last one? I, I have to say, I'm probably guilty of this at the potluck, right? I go to the dessert table first because I want to make sure I get my slice of dessert because if I wait till the end, it's going to be gone. I've just given away my trade secret. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) We don't think about other people and the desire to satisfy our appetite. We're too busy 
um, ignoring the people around about us. Think about the impact on the created order. I mean, there's lots of documentaries and stuff on this. I love my meat, um, so, so I'm not going to be anti-meat in any of this stuff. But you think about the impact on animals. Like to get milk, there are cows that are stuffed in these little pens continually, like night and day, attached to a milking machine, fed growth hormones to help stimulate the milk with their little calf sitting next to them so they're just constantly churning out milk. We've got hens that are in these tiny crates. We've got ducks in parts of the world that have a feeding tube stuffed down into their stomach, pumping them full so that they get fat, so that their liver fattens up, so that we can sit and enjoy foie gras, fatty duck liver, which tastes delicious, I'm afraid to say. Um, You think of the steroids in the animals, the impact it's having on our health. You think about the land, the amount of growth hormones and genetically modified crops that we're having to build and manufacture because there's such a high demand on things like bread. So we fake all the foods and put all the junk in them so that it lasts longer, so that we can eat it more. And then 40% of it goes in the bin and in the process, all of our money goes in medical care to fix the issues going on in us. We're not thinking about the land, we're not thinking about the animals, we're not thinking about the people. And I have to tell you, when I walk into a supermarket to pick up a steak, I'm not thinking about where it came from or how it got there. Was it ethical? And what's it doing to the relationships I have? Gluttony degrades our relationships with the people around us and the created order. Look again at Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 8. Paul addressing them in the way that their relationship to food was hurting the people around about them. He says, so... Uh, about food that's been sacrificed to idols. We don't worry about this today, but this was a big deal to them. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. For even if there were so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. Thank you, Paul. Uh, The Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there's one God, Jesus Christ, whom all things came and for whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to God. And since their conscience is weak or they're sensitive to these issues, their conscience is defiled. But food doesn't bring us near to God. We're no worse if we eat it or don't eat it. No better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the other people. For if someone with a weak or sensitive conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what's sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak consciences, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I'll not cause them to fall. How many of us, and I'm, I'm really guilty of this, how many of us, you have someone coming over to your house that has a strict diet, so you cook for yourself and then you cook something separate for them because you want the big nice meal and you want them to have something that works. How often do you cook the thing? We often are not, we're thinking about people in one sense, but we're allowing our desire for things to get in the way of the other people. Last one, gluttony dulls her spirituality. And I want to say one thing before I talk about this in the proper sense of gluttony. Spiritual gluttony is a real thing. And it's one of the things that we are very guilty of in Western Christianity in the church. What's spiritual gluttony? I go to the Bible study, I read the books, I listen to the sermons, I listen to the podcasts, I listen to all of these people talking about all this stuff to do with the Bible, and then I do nothing with it. 
So we just sit and we fatten ourselves on the word of God. Uh, we absorb all of the stuff. We get vocal about what's right and what's wrong. We criticize, we tear people down. You're in, you're out, you're right, you're wrong. And we fail to share the gospel and we fail to love our neighbor. Spiritual gluttony is a real thing and I think we're very, very guilty of it. Um, anyway, back to real gluttony. Uh, Jesus' ministry began with a declaration about his relationship to food. Don't know if you've thought about it this way. You go to Matthew 4. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So Jesus is about to embark on the ministry that we're all here because of. And to start it, he went off into the wilderness and didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell the stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word of God. Jesus making this statement right at the beginning. Like, I understand that it's not about food, that God provides and sustains me. What's more important than eating the things that I feel my body needs is doing the things that the Lord says I'm supposed to do. Look at a couple of other things that he says um, that, that change how we think about food and drink. Jesus in John chapter four says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. How many of you, when you're feeling hungry and you're trying to rush to the snack cupboard to get something to fill your appetite are thinking, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So what does he want me to do right now? What if instead of grabbing some food, we reconnected the source of the universe? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There's a satisfaction found in Jesus that will never be found in the things that we eat or drink. The things that we eat or drink and the urge for food and satisfaction exists to point us to the ultimate source of satisfaction. And lastly, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I think it's the beautiful thing about the way God has designed our body. We, like, thankfully, he's given us, like, a a hunger meter that tells us we're hungry and we go eat food. If we didn't have it, people like me and Daniel would just work constantly until we died. (laughs) But those things stop us at times to tell us you got to go eat again. So, um, yeah, just the way that he calls us into these things. We've got to eat. Uh, we've got to seek him more than the things that we eat. We've got to allow the drive for hunger uh, to point us to the drive for satisfaction in him. Is that what's happening in your life? Um, use this as a little test for yourself. How, how aware are you of the desire for food in a day? And how much do you hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God in a day? Who is your God? So to wrap up with, let's look at the cure. I did this again. The cure for gluttony, not avarice. You can see I just edit my slides. Look at that. Um, So first one, we have to stop. (laughs) We have to stop allowing this thing to take control of our life. And how, I mean, that's easier said than done. I'm going to look at a couple of things that, that help us in this. But this is the simple, you got to stop reaching for the potato chips every time your body tells you you need it. You've got to stop going to Starbucks every time you feel you need a coffee or insomnia for those who live near uh, to insomnia. 
But uh, it's fascinating. I go through seasons, Lent is coming up again. I go through seasons where I fast coffee. And what I find is I am most often hung, like when I'm craving coffee, if I don't have it, most often I'm craving it either because I'm hungry, I want the milk of the latte because I didn't have enough food that morning, or I'm thirsty. And so instead of reaching for water, I go for coffee, which drains your body of fluid. Right? How dumb that is. Um, we've got to stop. We've got to be aware of it and just interrupt those moments that, that make us want to go satisfy ourselves in ways that are unhealthy. Number two, think about your relationship to food and its consequences. You've, like, a lot of these vices are about self-examination. When you're at home, do you notice that when you're at home and you're snacking on something, it's because you feel alone or because you feel inadequate or because you've had a, a hard day or because you're worn out? The number of times I get home at the end of the day and I'm like, I just want some chocolate or something sweet because I want the sugar rush because I didn't get enough sleep last night and I didn't take enough breaks today. Uh, and so I'm allowing food, food to fuel an unhealthy lifestyle. So think about your relationship to food. Why are you reaching for what you're reaching for? What are the consequences of going to the store and buying the cheap uh, filler product that you're then going to go home and put in your body? Number three, fasting. Uh, the number of times I hear someone say, oh, I can't do fasting. It's just too hard. Then that means you really need it right? Because fasting is about detaching from our body's mechanism that says, I feel hunger, therefore I have to satisfy it. So fasting is us saying, I'm going to stop and I'm going to allow my body to feel the pang and I'm going to remind myself that just because I feel a little bit hungry or I feel a craving for something doesn't mean it needs to be satisfied. So um, if you say I can't fast other than for medical reasons, it's probably the primary discipline that you need to engage in this season of your spirituality. Conveniently, Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. Lent is a time in the church calendar that traditionally people have fasted um, on the lead up to Easter to prepare your heart for celebrating the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. So you have a day already in the calendar, starting on Wednesday, that, that is geared towards helping you think through this and put something in place. Now, again, the, the relationship between things like avarice and, and large amounts of money and prosperity and gluttony, are, you see it in fasting. If I go to India, where I do a lot of work out there, and they fast, they're having no food because all they have is food, and so they eat no meals. In this country, because we have abundance, we tend to look at fasting as I'm going to give up chocolate. So we give up the luxuries that we don't need, where other cultures have to give up the only sustenance they have, and we call what we do fasting. It's a version of fasting, um, but, but I'd encourage you, take a day, just one day. Eat, eat a big meal at nighttime before you go to bed, and then for the day up until dinner time, don't eat any food and pay attention to what am I craving and why am I craving it and what happens if I say no to my body's urge for food and allow the hunger pang inside of you to turn your attention back to the Lord. I'm hungry. I don't need coffee. I don't need sugar. I don't need pretzels. What I need is to reconnect with the source of life and see what happens to your spirituality for the day as you cultivate that practice. Lastly, and I feel it's important to finish here, is enjoy eating. It's a funny one to put in 
Um, and there's a deliberate nod in this last image to Eve eating her apple, if it's there, yeah. Be grateful for what you have. Be grateful that God gives us a power source to fuel the work that he's called us to do. Uh, he, he's provided so much for us. We live in a part of the world where we have abundance. So enjoy it. Don't overindulge. Don't freak out about it. Don't get too picky. Just enjoy what you have and thank God for the gift that he's given to us. So let me pray. God, this is, it's a hard one because uh, it's so commonplace. I've been able to discern the relationship or the, the line between I'm hungry and I need to eat versus I'm reaching for something that I don't need in a way that reveals a broken attachment in me. Lord, that line is hard to discern. God, it breaks my heart when I think about the waste in our country. It, it disturbs me to think of the way our health has been destroyed because of things we're eating uh, in an industry that is trying to make us spend more money on things that we don't need, Lord. Um, and then in all of that, we fail to hear you and to seek you and to listen to you and be right to you. So God, what we want to do is say thank you. Thank you for the gift of food. Thank you for chocolate and Starbucks and insomnia and Cold Stone and those moments of enjoyment and pleasure. But would you help us to look at ourselves, to assess where our attachment is off, to realize the ways that it impacts our relationship with others, uh, the justice issues in the world and hinders the way that we pursue you. So God, give us insight and help us to break the patterns in the name of Jesus. Um, so just to, to, before we finish with our worship songs, I want you to do as we've done every week. Turn to someone beside you. Uh, what's one thing that God is, is stirring in you or challenging in you as a result of this? Share the one thing and then take a moment, pray for each other, and then we'll close with some more worship.